This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you call us to be salt of the earth, a light that exposes the darkness of the world and a city upon a hill. So open our hearts, so illuminate our imaginations, so fill our minds, and so command our wills that we might have the mind of Christ and be all that these images entail. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Our gospel passage from Matthew this morning contains three of the most well-known images in the entire Bible. Salt of the earth, light of the world, and city on a hill. That's right. Like all the other well-known images from Scripture that have shaped the imagination of Western culture, these three have been detached from their original context and put to new and very different purposes than Jesus intended. What does it, call, what does it mean to call someone salt of the earth? It doesn't really mean someone who's a follower of Jesus, does it? It means someone who is decent, humble, hardworking, dependable, and above all, unpretentious. Most of us can probably call to mind someone who we would describe as salt of the earth. Likewise, light of the world and city on a hill are well known in the American context as well. But this is for a slightly different reason, because there are several famous speeches which have indelibly shaped American self-perception that use these images. The first is a model of Christian charity, which John Winthrop, the first governor of the Bay Colony of Massachusetts, gave aboard the Arbella on his way to the New World. Now for Winthrop... The Bay Colony was about something specific. It was about the creation of a community in which the ordinances or the laws of Scripture as his Puritan colleagues understood them could be practiced freely. Such a community would be distinctive. It would be the light of the world and the city on a hill, serving as a beacon that would persuade others to pursue the vision of Christ's church purely reformed. And likewise, the threat of judgment hung over the community should it fail in its design. The other famous speeches that describe the nation on a shine, as a shining city on a hill were given by various politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, as you think a single party has you know, a monopoly on that. And there's speeches by John F. Kennedy in 1961, Ronald Reagan in 1980, and again in 1989, Barack Obama in 2006, Mitt Romney in 2012. I'm sure there's other examples. You can illuminate me later. But in each of these speeches, the nation and its ideals have been described as a beacon to the world and a shining city upon a hill, both the envy and the inspiration of the world's nations. And these speeches have simultaneously made these images that Jesus gives us ubiquitous in American culture, and it has completely obscured from view what Jesus meant by them. So for many in our cultural moments, these expressions have undergirded the idea of American exceptionalism, that somehow America has been uniquely chosen to advance the purposes of the kingdom of God. And we can point to many pastors and churches for whom this remains the case, like, for instance, the Baptist pastor Robert Jefferson Dallas, who in total sincerity has had his choir director create a Make, a, a Make America Great Again theme. The idea here is that deep in his foundational DNA, America was founded with a divine mandate to uniquely incarnate the ideals of the kingdom of God as expressed in the New Testament and to champion Judeo-Christian values understood in a broad sense, both across the continent and ultimately across the world. 
Now, it is the case that many in the late 19th and early 20th centuries thought that that was exactly what they were doing, particularly in the mainline churches. Looking across the pond at America, this perplexed the prescient G.K. Chesterton. He said that America looked like it was a nation with the soul of a church. Now, I hope it goes without saying, but it probably doesn't in our current political climate. But I love this country in which I was born and raised, and I want what is best for it. But I'm a Christian, and I'm a priest within Christ's church first. And I have observed the consequences of what happens both to the church and the world when we take the language that Christ spoke about those who were apprenticed to him and transfer it to the ideals of the modern nation state. I can see that it makes Christians anxious and angry when they feel like they're losing their country and easily manipulable when someone promises to restore it, and that is a calamity. For the sake of our own discipleship, the church must repent and demythologize secular politics and approach them in a radically different way. The consequences for our mission to our great city are likewise calamitous when we transfer these images to the nation. I want you to just do a little thought experiment with me. I want you to pause for a moment and imagine that you are a college student at Pitt or CMU. And now I want you to imagine hearing Robert Jeffress's Make America Great Again choir. How does that strike you? Imagine with me again that you're a software engineer working at Google and Bakery Square. What does it sound like to you when you hear Make America Great Again choir? Imagine with me now how these expressions, salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill, would register for these individuals. They are now associated with highly politicized versions of Christianity. These are people whom God created in his image and for whom Jesus died to buy back from the power of hell and to whom we are to be ambassadors of Christ's reconciliation. How can we fail to see this as a calamity? As I've often said from this pulpit, misuse of biblical expressions out of context encourages a simultaneous over and under familiarity with the scriptures, and in particular with the message and the person of Jesus. The result of this over and under familiarity is that our non-Christian friends and neighbors, and indeed we ourselves, have no idea what Jesus is talking about. We've totally missed his message. We live in what many have called a post-Christian culture in the West. A post-Christian culture has ceased to be Christian in any meaningful sense, but in a completely different way than a pre-Christian culture, a culture which has yet to be evangelized. And that makes our missional task different than the task that was faced by, say, St. Paul, or early missionaries to pagan societies like Ulfalas, or St. Boniface, or St. Cyril Methodius. A post-Christian culture has been saturated with many of the downstream effects of Christianization, like a strong distinction between religion and politics, a value for compassion and the dignity and worth of all people, and a linear and progressive view of history, and so on. But these assumptions and values have been cut off from their roots in the message of Scripture and in the union with Christ that the Word creates and sustains. Now, some have described the ancestrally Christian assumptions and values that permeate post-Christian society as cut flowers. What they mean is that the bloom remains, but the animating spirit and force behind them has been lost. And the expectation is that under such circumstances, these fruits of the gospel will wither. But I don't think this is quite the right image. 
In my view, the flowers of Christian, Christian civilization do not so much wither, but mutate, becoming heretical, destructive, and virtually unrecognizable versions of themselves as they are made into ultimate and sacred things in themselves. When this happens, when the fruits of discipleship to Jesus are made ultimate ideals in themselves, what happens is what John Bossie has called a migration of the holy. Things that are not sacred, but are rather the fruit of the church's sacred loyalty to Jesus come to be treated as themselves sacred. Actually, history is full of migrations of the holy. We've already looked at one, how Jesus' images of the light of the world and the city on a hill were attached to American exceptionalism. But we might now also point to the appropriation of the linear and progressive vision of history, which is the gift of Jews and Christians to the world. The idea that history is leading somewhere and is guided towards an ultimate justice and resolution of evil by a personal creator who loves and is in the process of restoring his creation. This idea has been depersonalized and annexed to a popular atheistic evolutionary pattern and then applied to the dreams of a technologically driven utopia. Mark Sayers, who's one of my current favorite cultural commentators, calls post-Christian culture the desire for a kingdom without a king. And that's the right way of framing this phenomenon. Our culture wants the heavenly city that the book of Hebrews promises. But we want to build it ourselves and on our own terms. Our culture refuses the lordship of the only one who can build and sustain that heavenly city. And this is in part because the world is in open rebellion against the Lord of heaven and earth. We know this in part because Jesus became human and died for our sake that we might be liberated from this rebellion. But it's also, and I want to stress this in our post-Christian context, that it's because people think they know what Christianity is and who Jesus is, and they regard it as either irrelevant and boring or extreme and dangerous. In a post-Christian context, people have actually been inoculated against the gospel. Very small doses of biblical language, shorn from context, slapped onto bumper stickers and billboards, quoted from celebrities and politicians, have made it difficult for the story of Scripture to take root in anyone's heart, believer or, or non-believer alike. So what does it mean then to become meaningfully Christian and evangelistic in a post-Christian context? First and foremost, this is a process of reclamation and retrieval. We have to relearn our story and become able to articulate it coherently and faithfully and powerfully. I've said it many times, but this process is only going to happen as we begin to read the Bible both extensively and intensively, both in big chunks and in detailed and studious ways, really coming to understand the meaning of particular expressions. It's particularly important for us to do this with the Gospels, which, from different perspectives for each author, disclose to us the story of Jesus. So with that in mind, I want to explore these peculiar expressions that Jesus uses to describe his apprentices, those who are following in the way that he established. So the first thing we have to do is look at where this passage falls in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. And when we do that, we discover that it comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, immediately following the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, which the Sermon on the Mount articulates, then serve as the interpretive context or framework within which we understand the meaning of Jesus' expressions here. 
So because Matthew 5 begins with Jesus being surrounded by crowds, we can sometimes imagine that the Beatitudes are addressed indiscriminately to everyone. But verse 1 actually says that when he sees the crowds, he goes up on top of a mountaintop and sits down. And then his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. So already we can see that the Sermon on the Mount is not addressed to the world, but to those who have apprenticed themselves to Jesus with the world listening in, as it were. The word beatitude, which Jesus speaks, comes from the Latin word beatificus, which means made happy. And this is the Latin word which translates the Greek word makarios here in our text, which most English translations render as blessed. This is not a helpful word for us. Blessed is a hashtag, like I just paid off my mortgage, hashtag blessed. Or like, I just threw down for a Mercedes Benz, hashtag blessed. It's not what Jesus is talking about. In an important recent book, Jonathan Pennington argues that Jesus was in conversation here with classical thoughts on what it means to call a person happy. We think about happiness as a transient, pleasurable sense of lightness or buoyancy or well-being. But that is not what the ancient world meant by happiness. Ancient philosophers all understood human beings as having a purpose which they were meant to accomplish precisely as human beings. Aristotle famously defined human beings as political animals and then later on also as rational animals. And for Aristotle, this is a kind of reverse engineering that he was doing to create a definition. Because for him, it was palpably the case that that the point of being a human being was to secure the common good for your city, your polis. So to be happy means to have achieved your purpose, your design, as it were, in helping your city become as strong as it could possibly be, to wreak destruction upon your enemies and bestow benefits upon your allies. Another way to describe happiness understood in this ancient way is this flourishing. When we use this metaphor, what we're saying is that to be happy is to be like a tree that is planted in good and rich and nourishing soil that's well watered so that it becomes strong and formidable, In other words, a tree that has achieved its purpose. To be happy or to flourish in the ancient world means to do what you were made for, to accomplish your purpose in the world. And so the Beatitudes then presuppose that the disciple, one who is apprenticed to Jesus, has a purpose. That he or she needs to acquire certain habits and dispositions and to perform certain actions in order to arrive at this goal. Jesus shows that he is in conversation with this ancient way of thinking about the purpose of the human being in his first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, just as much as Aristotle, that your good, your purpose is to work for the common good of a city, of a polis. But that polis, however, is the kingdom of God. That's actually where your citizenship is. And the infinite qualitative difference between that heavenly city and the earthly cities, which we all also indwell, means that the disciple of Jesus requires a very different kind of formation than the world is capable of giving. We need the kind of formation that is sketched out in the Beatitudes. Jesus says that citizenship in this heavenly city 
has always been what God has called his people to. Jesus says that the law and the prophets, which is the Jewish way of summing up the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, talk about the citizenship. And he then adds that he has not come, he's not come to abolish them. He has not come to deconstruct them. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, neither jot nor tittle, which is a reference to the way that Hebrew script actually looks, will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But this meaning of the law and the prophets, he goes on to say, only becomes clear when we understand them in the light of the righteousness that Christ brings. I have not come to destroy them, to deconstruct them, but to fulfill them, to show what their true meaning is. The redemptive movement that Christ is carrying out on this earth is what every disciple of his will participate in. And so when someone follows Christ and does what he or she sees the master doing, that person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that person who longs for the heavenly city and in that desire begins to conform his or her life toward living like that city is the highest purpose of humanity has a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. To have a righteousness that surpasses the, that of the Pharisees and the scribes means to have become part of that redemptive movement that Christ is bringing into the world. So as Jesus finishes sketching those habits and dispositions and actions which his disciples must embody, Jesus then turns to the function which the people so formed will have in the world. And that's our passage today. That's those images. Jesus says that such people, those who are flourishing or accomplishing the purpose for which they were made, are the salt of the earth. Now what does that mean? Unfortunately, most preachers and biblical commentaries get off on the wrong foot in trying to understand what Jesus is saying here. Most of them spend a lot of time reflecting on the qualities or the properties of salt. So salt's a preservative. Does Jesus want his disciples to preserve the goodness of the world, to make the world an incrementally better place? Possibly. Salt is necessary for life. Are the disciples as necessary for life as salt is? It's plausible. Salt is a seasoning. Are the disciples making the gospel of Jesus Christ tasty to the world? Maybe. I don't want to disparage any of these meanings. They're probably all in the background. Jesus is a masterful storyteller. There's lots of different layers of meaning, like an onion. You know, you got to peel it back, figure out all the meanings. It's kind of awesome, actually, when you get into it. But all of those interpretations ignore what is palpably, plainly on the surface here for anybody who would have heard Jesus' message. And it's right there embedded in the expression itself. He doesn't say salt of the world, like salting the cosmos. He says salt of the earth or salt of the land. That's really how this should be translated. And that expression has a lot of ancient precedent behind it. And that precedent is ominous and even threatening. Salt on the land kills everything that grows on the land. When Yahweh destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for barbarity and cruelty, what's left behind is a wasteland of salt in which nothing grows. When Israel breaks its covenant with Yahweh at Sinai, Moses warns the people that the Lord would make the land a brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, so that no grass grows on it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. When Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 conquers the city of Shechem, he raises the city to the ground and then he seals that victory by salting the land so that nothing would grow on it. 
After the rebellions in Judea that are collectively called the Jewish wars in the first and second centuries, the Romans, who were so filled with fury against the Jews for these rebellions, wasted extravagant amounts of money and manpower in order to vent their spleen against the people. They salted large parts of Palestine after putting down these revolts so that nothing would grow on the land. So salt in Jesus' day is an image not primarily about preservation or tastiness. It's about judgment. Likewise, we've come to think about light in the terms that it has been interpreted in the American context over the past couple hundred years. Light is a beacon, something that draws you to itself. And again, that's clearly in the background for Jesus as well. Since he mentions letting your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and testify or glorify, excuse me, your Father who is in heaven. But again, the main thrust of what Jesus is saying here is not about the church being attractive or intriguing to the world, actually. It's about carrying the fire of Christ within us and thereby illuminating the falsehood of the world, the flesh, and the devil which has enslaved the world. When Jesus talks about light in the Gospels, it's almost always an image of judgment, of exposure, of revelation. It means light coming into darkness and exposing the darkness for what it is. It is primarily about an unmasking that takes place as the darkness is illuminated. It's about lies confronted by the truth. It's about the power of death faced down by the power of life. The light shines in the darkness, John's gospel says, and the darkness has not overpowered it. Jesus is saying in these three images that there is an overgrowth and in us that needs to be salted so that it no longer continues to grow. There is a darkness and a shadow in us in the world that needs exposing. And he's saying that his disciples, those who are flourishing by pursuing the character that's expressed in the Beatitudes, are the instrument that God is going to use to do that. Now I've got to anticipate an objection here. I've already said that Christians are largely understood to be obnoxious, retrograde, bigoted, culturally insensitive people in the United States. And there's very good reasons for people to think that, actually. Christians regularly conduct themselves poorly. They are unkind. They're uncharitable. Pastors in particular have failed through sexual and financial sin and more recently through belligerence and abuse and authoritarianism. None of that's what Jesus is saying here. What needs to be salted in the world and exposed by the light is not actually people because people are who Jesus came to seek and to save. People do not need to be withered. Actually, people need to be nurtured with the profoundest compassion and understanding so that they might become the little ones that believe in him. He does not say, seek opportunities to be provocative, to make yourself obnoxious to the world. He does not say, pursue a scorched earth campaign against your opponents and those who insult you. Actually, he makes it totally clear that he doesn't mean that a little bit later on in Matthew chapter 5. Again, got to keep reading. What should your actions look like if you're a disciple being formed by the character of the Beatitudes? He tells us straight up, not only don't murder, but don't even think uncharitable thoughts about your neighbor. To do so is figuratively and symbolically to murder them. Not only don't practice the lex talionis, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the left cheek as well and do it all for the glory of God. No, he says, it's not in your provocative behavior that you will scour the earth. It's in your identity and your posture as his disciple. 
in your identity as a disciple, a person oriented by the Beatitudes, this is what you are. You're salt on the land. The destructive powers and principalities of this earth wither before the ones who live out the character described in the Beatitudes. The identity that is forged by a life lived in pursuit of the character described in the Beatitudes is the instrument that Jesus will ultimately use to wither every wicked thing on this earth. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this in his magnum opus, Discipleship. You are the salt, not you should be the salt. The disciples are given no choice whether they want to be salt or not. No appeal is made to them to become salt of the earth. Rather, they are just salt, whether they want to be or not, by the power of the call which has reached them. If we are people who become apprentices of Jesus by pursuing a life shaped by the Beatitudes, we are going to be in our very nature salt that kills off everything evil upon this earth and light which exposes the darkness. And that is simultaneously going to be profoundly attractive and profoundly resisted and despised. And so for Christ, salt and light imagery is first and foremost a warning against those who follow him. Notice that each one of those expressions is followed by a word of warning to his disciples not to cease to have these things in themselves. We need to examine ourselves to see what evidence we find there of the activity of the world and the flesh and the devil. And that is why the church has always insisted upon the tremendous value of sacramental confession. See, Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, that everyone must be salted by fire. That's judgment language. And then in verse 50, have salt in yourselves that you may be at peace with one another. That is, we must always let ourselves be scoured and let the light of Jesus search out the dark corners of our hearts so that Jesus can heal the place that sin and death have taken over inside of us. This is the posture of someone that Jesus calls pure in heart. And these are the ones who will see God. Those who will let themselves be searched and salted by Christ will become peacemakers. And peacemakers are called children of God. We cannot lose this saltiness and we cannot lose this light without ceasing to be his disciples. Here's where I want to end today. There is no greater sadness for me as a pastor than for people to think because of oversaturation and overfamiliarity with the word of God that we've moved past it or exhausted the plenitude of its meaning. We dare not, we dare not make its narratives and images into little cliches or little doses of moral fiber to keep our noses clean. How dare we? That is actually to bind the word of God and to resist its power so that it cannot do its prophetic work inside of us. The word of God is God-breathed. It is the sword of the Spirit for this purpose, that it can smash within us every place that resists the work of God so that the servant of God, as St. Paul's language, may be equipped for every good work. May we open ourselves to it so that that can happen. Read and study, my friends. The word of God is inexhaustible. As it is God's word, by his spirit, in every age he brings fresh insight and wisdom so that those who want to follow Jesus, who want to be his apprentices, can do that. May it be so for us. 
May Christ salt us with his word and shine his light in us through his word. And may we then be people of the Beatitudes who are salt on the land that withers the wicked things of this world and the light of the world that banishes darkness. Amen.